Well, the Ancient of Days is an Old Testament name for God, and it was used to describe his eternality, that he's always been, and he always will be, and uh, he is on his throne, reigning over everything, and there's never a time when he hasn't been on his throne, and there never will be, will be a time when he is not on his throne, and that just gives us great comfort and great hope, even though we may not understand what's going on presently in our lives uh, or what uh, the future holds for our lives, uh, we know that God is on his throne, amen? And it's such a good reminder. Found in the book of Daniel, by the way, three times, only, only place it's used in scriptures in the book of Daniel, Ancient of Days. But I think it's interesting, and the reason why I think it's so timely for us to be singing that is because, of course, Daniel uh, was... Uh, living at the same time, if you will, those in the book of Esther during the time of exile uh, when the nation of Israel uh, seemingly had been abandoned by God uh, because they had been ripped out of their homeland and were in exile in a foreign country, Babylon, and uh, when Daniel was there and then now Persia when Esther and Mordecai were there. And so I think it's an appropriate song for us to be singing as we go through the book of Esther, which we are uh, making our way to into chapter 5 this morning, Esther chapter 5, and this is the last chapter in the first section of the book, which is, uh, you could call a threat to the Jews, and then next week we'll get into uh, the triumph of the Jews, and so this is a transitional uh, chapter uh, here in chapter 5, and so I want to read it with you together, and then we'll talk about it. Esther chapter 5, now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet and the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zareth. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared and tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. 
Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zareth, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, 50 cubits high, made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Father, as we continue to study this book, I pray that your spirit who inspired uh, really the unknown author uh, to write it, we know that uh, that same spirit dwells among us and in us. And one of the purposes why you sent the Holy Spirit was to illuminate us to understand your word that we would interpret it accurately and apply it faithfully and diligently um, in our lives. And so we ask for your Spirit's help today. As we unpack what's here, Lord, would you impact our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're learning that the story of Esther is filled with all sorts of irony and tension and conflict. And behind the scenes, we know that the tension and the conflict is ultimately between God and Satan, and between pagans and the Jews. But on the surface, it's a clash between wisdom and folly. And one of the main genres or literary styles found in the Old Testament is poetry, also referred to as wisdom literature. We're talking about Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Those are the five poetic books in the Old Testament. And of these five wisdom books, Proverbs provides the clearest contrast between wisdom and folly. And throughout the book of Proverbs, as you know, if you're familiar with Proverbs, there are pithy statements there intended to help the reader to live wisely and to avoid the pitfalls into which those who live foolishly inevitably fall. And time and time again, the writer of Proverbs places the wise person alongside the the foolish person in order to compare and contrast the two opposing ways to live along with the two ensuing outcomes. And what we find here today in the historical narrative in the book of Esther uh, is an illustration of the wisdom literature of the Proverbs. And nowhere is this glaring contrast between wisdom and folly more obvious than here in Esther chapter 5. Here, wisdom and folly are viewed side by side in the actions and decisions of Esther and Haman. And you can divide up this chapter into two distinct scenes. In verses 1 through 8, we see wisdom embodied by Esther as she willingly risked her life for the sake of her people and humbly approached the king and graciously and and tactfully uh, made an appeal to him. And then in verses 9 through 14, we see see folly personified in Haman as he was easily angered and offended and proudly boasted about himself and followed the unwise counsel of his family and friends to seek personal revenge against Mordecai. Listen to a few of the Proverbs that are illustrated uh, in this chapter. And you can feel free to follow along with me if you'd like as I read a few of these Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16. 
A gracious woman attains honor, and ruthless men attain riches. That was not Proverbs 12.16. Let me read Proverbs 12.16. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. That sounds more like I was looking for. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 15. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. Verse 20. He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Chapter 14, verse 35, the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. We'll see that second half of that in the next chapter. Um, Chapter 15, verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Chapter 16, verse 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. The fury of a king is like messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain. And then verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And again in that same chapter, verses 21 and 22, the wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. Chapter 17, verse 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Chapter 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. We see a lot of drinking going on in the book of Esther, and it's usually Haman and Ahasuerus who are doing it. Verse 2, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Chapter 22, verse 11, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. Chapter 25, Verses 6 and 7, do not claim honor in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of great men, for it is better that to be said of you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another praise you and not your own mouth a stranger and not your own lips. And then finally in chapter 29, Proverbs 29, verse 9, when a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs and there is no rest. Men of bloodshed hate the blameless, but the upright are concerned for his life. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. So I read those just to give you some examples of how wisdom and folly are both 
illustrated here, exemplified by both Esther and Haman. And so let's look first of all at Esther's wisdom, the wisdom that she displayed in verses 1 through 8, starting in verse 1. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. You say, what was significant about the third day? Well, if you were here last week, you know exactly why that's significant. Look back at chapter 4, verse 16. This is what Esther told Mordecai. Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish... I perished, and so Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. He called all the Jews in Susa to fast and pray for three days, along with Esther in her court. And so now it was three days later, and Esther was ready to boldly approach the king on his throne. And even though she was... Uh, breaking royal protocol, she wisely wore her royal robes rather than showing up in the king's presence in sackcloth and ashes. We learned last week that the kings in those days would isolate themselves with, with what was going on in people's lives, the poverty, the pain. They didn't want to see sackcloth and ashes. You only could uh, have a smile on your face. If you remember in the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah was concerned that uh, when the king noticed that he... Uh, his countenance had fallen. He was meditating on thinking about his people and the state of uh, Jerusalem and how the walls had been torn down and it was burdening his heart. And the king noticed. And he said, why is your countenance fallen? And that was a no-no in the king's presence. You always had to have a smile on your face in the king's presence. And so, uh, or you could lose your head. You could get banished for things like that. And so she put on her royal garb and uh, wanting to make herself as attractive as possible and she approached the king, and here was the, uh, the critical step right here, verse 2. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. Whew. That's what she was concerned about. Was he going to extend that scepter or not? And so Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. And again, this is God's providence at work. God providentially directed the heart of Hazuerus to extend his scepter to her, even though she came uninvited. And by doing so, he was protecting her from the axemen. Remember, we talked about last week, there was these men with axes surrounding the king's throne, and if anyone... Uh, came into his presence uninvited or uh, in some way violated some protocol, they could be executed on the spot. And so there she came and his scepter extending to her protected her from those who stood ready to execute uh, those like her. And again, Proverbs 21 Verse 1, we've been quoting this verse almost weekly now. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of who? Of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I think this is a great reminder for us that 
it's not just the king, it's your husband or your teacher or your boss or anyone in authority over you. Their heart is like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That includes parents as well, kids, right? When you're wondering, uh, I've got to have this conversation with my parents and I'm not sure how it's going to go. Well, again, pray for God to direct their heart in the way that would honor him and accomplish the greatest good in your life. So by God's grace and his sweet providence, Esther got past that first hurdle, and that was a big one. She was in, if you will. Verse 3, then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. So the king realized that obviously something was very uh, was bothering her. Something was very important to her that uh, would have led her to risk her life to come see him. And so he asked her what she wanted and promised to grant her her request up to half the kingdom. I'll give you anything you ask for within reason. Is essentially what he was saying to her. And this was a common promise among Oriental kings, which was not intended to be taken literally. If you remember in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 6, when Herod made the same promise to uh, his wife's, uh, Heroditus' daughter, uh, who he had stolen from his brother Philip, and uh, her daughter came in and danced before King Herod in Mark chapter 6, verse 22, She pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. So that was a way a king would kind of throw his weight around and just say, hey, I I own it all. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And so that's what Ahasuerus promised to Esther. Verse 4 Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And if you consider the the immense pressure that she was under, I mean, just being in the king's presence uninvited, wondering if this was going to lead to her losing her life, and now she's finally got the ear of the king, you would have thought perhaps she would just, just immediately just blurt out that Haman had tricked him into annihilating her people. Kind of a a frantic uh, announcement of sorts. But she shows great poise here and patience. And she invited the king and Haman to join her at a private banquet that she had prepared for them. And you may be wondering, why, why didn't she just tell him right then and there? Why beat around the bush? Why prolong the, 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 the inevitable here? Well, bottom line, it wasn't the time or the place. I think you know this, that when it comes to making an important or urgent appeal to someone, particularly someone in authority, um, timing is everything, isn't it? You need to have the wisdom to know when and where and how to bring up a particular matter. Uh, Bringing up the decree And acknowledging that she was a Jew in public would not have been a wise move. She knew that would put her husband on the spot in front of all of his advisors and whoever else was present there in the inner court. I mean, the last time 
a queen did something like that and put her husband, put the king on the spot, what did he do? He banished her, right? That was Vashti in chapter 1, verse 12. And so considering the delicate nature of her request and her revelation, oh, by the way, you're married to a Jew, it would be much better to have a private discussion over a meal where there wasn't all the pressure of protocol on the king, where not everyone was looking at, to, looking at him to see how he was going to respond. Besides, in the Persian culture, banquets were the socially acceptable platform for discussing serious issues or, or, or having negotiations. And so it was very appropriate for her to ask him to come to a banquet. So verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And so Ahasuerus wasn't wasting any time at all. He, he wanted to get the word to Haman so he could come immediately uh, to attend this banquet. He was very curious. His, his curiosity was piqued. Verse 6, as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So after the meal, the king again asked Esther what she wanted and repeated his lavish promise to her. Verse 7, so Esther replied, my petition and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, in other words, if you really mean what you say, that you really do want to grant my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do this, do as the king says. In other words, she pushes it off another day. And so she respectfully requested that he and Haman come to a second banquet on the following day, and there she would reveal her request. And it's interesting, just the the judicious way that she asked there in verse 8, the language there. If it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, she, she was securing a guaranteed response from the king. There was no way he could say no. And so she was wisely getting him to promise to do whatever she asked. And again, the question is, well, why the delay? Well, some suggest that she got scared and was guilty of putting off a difficult conversation, which we've all been guilty of, right? Others suggest that having been out of favor with the king for 30 days, she wanted to to have some time to ingratiate herself to him again. for him to warm up to her again, and so spending time together. Others suggest that she was shrewdly inflating Haman's pride in order to throw off any suspicion that she was about to expose him as a callous, cold-blooded killer who had lied to her husband. Well, that's all speculation. I do think it's safe to say, though, that because she had sought God's guidance through fasting and prayer, that she was simply following God's direction, and she seemed to do what was best at the time. And I think we can learn a lesson here from Esther that 
that when we, we seek God's guidance and direction, there may be a situation or occasion when we just don't feel like it's the right time to say or do something, and so we wait for a more opportunity, a more opportune moment to speak or to act. Typically, we end up getting ourselves in trouble when we say or do things hastily without praying about them, right? That's a good question. Have I prayed about this? That always convicts me when my wife starts a conversation by saying, now, honey, I want to talk to you about something, and I've been praying about it. I'm like, oh, shoot. Here it comes. And she's got God on her side. She's just not laying into me because I did something stupid or said something stupid. This has been something that's been on her heart and her mind, even to the point she's brought it to the Lord in prayer. And uh, she feels like this is the right time, this is the right place to bring it up. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm in for it. Because she's brought God in on it, Right? Instead of what we typically do, we get hacked off about something in the moment, we spew something out and say something and confront ourselves, and that usually doesn't go real well, does it? Why? Because we haven't, the Lord's not in it. We haven't brought him into it through prayer. And so that's why situations often blow up in our face or conversations don't go well. Have you prayed about it? Have you even fasted about it? If it's that important to you, perhaps that's the first thing you should do. So that's from a human perspective that she was simply trying to stay in step with the Spirit as she's praying and fasting and wanting to do the right thing, say the right thing at the right time. But from God's perspective, the reason why this banquet had to be postponed a second time, if you will, or this conversation to another day is a couple things still had to happen before Esther revealed her request. The gallows on which Haman would be impaled had to be constructed by Haman himself on that same day. You can't make this stuff up. And on that same night, the king had to have a case of insomnia so he could discover through the reading of the Chronicles that he had never properly rewarded Mordecai for saving his life five years earlier. Again, you can't make this stuff up. And this is all part of God's plan, providential plan. And so again, we see, the, see divine sovereignty working in unison with human activity. As I was considering Esther's wisdom in handling a very delicate situation that could have very easily blown up and gone very badly, I was reminded of a couple situations that I found myself in when I was a youth pastor and uh, one occasion, there was these two brothers who had really struggled with honoring and obeying their parents, and uh, they had a tendency to be rebellious, and um, uh, unfortunately, the parents were probably guilty at times of exasperating them, and so I found out through the grapevine that these boys had uh, taken the family van and uh, took off and ran away. And, uh, and, and as, as a way to kind of get back at their parents. And, of course, as the youth pastor, I was not happy. I was like, oh, man, when I see those boys, I am going to tell them a thing or two, you know. And I was just kind of, you know, wanting to get some time with them and confront them about their rebellious attitude, their lack of respect and obedience to their parents. And um, anyway, I decided I should probably get some counsel before I went after them. And so... I called one of the other dads um, 
in the ministry. He was one of our adult staff, and he had kids in the ministry, and I always respected his wisdom as a parent. And so here I was, a young 26-year-old youth pastor without kids. And so I thought, I, I should probably talk to a guy that's had some teenagers. And so I'll never forget him saying, Ken, put your flamethrower away. Go buy a box of donuts and go find those guys where they're parked. And we knew they were parked at some cul-de-sac just like a half mile from their house. Not like they took off and went across country or something. Um, and so just go and, and uh, knock on the door of their van. Ask them if they wouldn't mind if you joined them. And uh, offer them some donuts and strike up a conversation with them. I was like, that's not what I was thinking. But I'll give that a try. And so I did. I went and bought a box of donuts, and I went and found these guys, and I walked. It was early in the morning, maybe 7.30, and I walked and knocked on, knocked on their van door. Ding, 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 ding. They were sleeping in there in their sleeping bags. And of course, they, the van door opened, sliding door opened, and they were like, you know, oh, you know, just waking up. And they're like, whoa, here's our youth pastor. We're in trouble now. Um, and so I said, hey, you guys mind if I come, come in? <laughs> and uh, sat them down and offered them some donuts, and we started to talk. And because I didn't come with my flamethrower, right, which they would have probably immediately reacted to, uh, we had a very insightful, helpful conversation about what was going on in their home and what was going on in their relationship with their parents. And, and uh, they knew they were wrong. Uh, they knew that they weren't pleasing to the Lord, and they wanted to change. They wanted to, to grow, and they needed help. And so, thankfully, I was able to help them. Rather than alienate them from me, um, I was able to ingratiate them, ingratiate myself to them, and they were willing to let me come alongside them and try to help them be reconciled to their parents. I was so grateful for that wise dad's advice, because that is not how I was going to handle the situation initially. Another situation I'll never forget was there was a, another young man in the ministry that was really a piece of work. I mean, we're talking... Uh, in a moral relationship with his girlfriend, he was doing drugs, um, and and he would he would he would get convicted, and he would repent, and he would say he wanted to change, and we'd believe him, and then he'd fall back into those same patterns, and this was just a, a, revol- a, a cycle that he was going through, even to the point where we had to actually uh, practice church discipline in our student ministry, and and uh, remove him from our student ministry because of the bad influence he was having on the other students. Well, at one point in our ministry to this young man, he brought one of his buddies, apparently it was, if I remember correctly, somebody that his dad worked, uh, this, this kid's dad worked with his dad. Um, and anyway, I started to get to know this other kid, and uh, he confided with me that he knew that this kid's, that we were trying to minister to, this kid's dad was, was doing cocaine. And I'm like, okay, so you're hearing a high school kid come to you, and I don't even know if this kid's saved. Who is this kid? He's telling, ratting out his friend's dad doing cocaine. I'm thinking, oh, great. What are we going to do with this? Right? Normally, you say, well, hey, if, you, if you're aware of something, you go, right? And you, you confront it. But what does Matthew 18 say? If you know someone's in sin, you go privately and you talk to them. Well, I wasn't about to send this teenager to go talk to some other guy's dad his friend's dad, even and not even knowing if this kid was saved. So I was left in my court, if you will, and I said, what am I going to do with this? And so 
again, my initial thought was, well, hey, I'm not one to beat around the bush. I'm just going to go straight to that dad, and I'm going to say, hey, I heard that you're doing cocaine. (laughs) Is that true? Well, of course, the first thing he's going to want to know is, well, who told you that? And then that becomes a whole mess, right? And, and, you know, get caught into this web. And so I went to one of the elders, one of the other elders that was overseeing student ministry, and I was so grateful for his counsel. He said, Ken, listen, this is an extremely delicate situation. Let me recommend to you how you should go about doing this. And he said, "Um, you know, we've been really scratching our head about why does this guy's son continue to give in to drugs and keeps going back to a life of drugs. And I think you should go appeal to that dad and say, hey, listen, we've, we're, we're praying with you. I know you're frustrated about your son. We're frustrated about your son. We don't know what, how else we can help him. Uh, you know, we've explored every potential reason why he might be falling back into a, a drug lifestyle. And, you know, one principle that uh, is in the Old Testament is that sometimes the sins of the father are visited on the kids, of this, uh, on, on, the, on, this, on the children. In other words, sometimes kids pick up their parents' bad habit patterns. It's not like they get punished for their kids' sins or their, their parents' sins. They pick up some of their bad habit patterns. And so, I, and so he said, that's how you need to approach that and, and, and ask him, appeal to him if there's any perhaps drug background that, that uh, his son has been uh, exposed to or knows about. Um, in his past life, and, and I thought, okay, I'm willing to give that a shot. So I did that. I went to their house, asked them if I could come over, and I sat down with the dad in the kitchen table, and mom was cooking dinner, and I just said, hey, we're really grieved for your son, and, and as you are, and just like you, we, we're scratching our head trying to figure out why does this kid keep giving into this, and um, again, the, the principle in the Old Testament is sometimes the sins of the father are are visited on the kids of the, uh, the, the, the sins of the children. And um, perhaps, I just have to ask you, uh, is there any kind of history in your life uh, of, of drug use and uh, that may have contributed to him? He may be seen you or, or been, have access to something or, um, you know, or maybe you, just, he, you told him about that, that he knows that that's part of your past. And, and he said, well, yeah, years ago, uh, you know, he was quick to admit that he had, you know, smoked marijuana and things like that, and, and uh, he says, no, I, I, don't, I don't understand, I don't know why, and I said, well, hey, listen, I know that was an awkward question for me to ask you, but I had to ask you that, thank you for being honest, and I thought, well, I'll uh, leave it at that, and so I said, well, thanks for letting me come over, I'll, I'm going to leave now, and so he said, well, let me walk you out, and I'll never forget, we walked out the door and started walking down the sidewalk, and I was about to get into my car, and he just stopped about five feet away from me and said, Ken, I need to be honest with you. He says, I'm struggling with cocaine right now. And he just came clean. I mean, he just came and grabbed me and just hugged me and just began to sob that, that finally he had somebody he could, he could confess to and, and get some help from. And, and I was, as I was holding this guy, comforting him, uh, I was just thanking the Lord for the wisdom of that elder to tell me, how, don't just go in there and confront it, but to go in in a very winsome, wise, winsome way and address the situation and trust God that he was going to bring it out in his way and in his time. And uh, it, was a, it was a powerful moment 
But again, I share that just because I think it's an example perhaps of me as a young uh, man not really thinking wisely about how to handle certain situations or occasions. I'm so grateful for those older, wiser men that came alongside me and helped me think through those things. And so I'd encourage you, if, if you do have a difficult conversation to have or, or you're in a difficult situation and you're trying to figure out what to say, what to do, find an older, wiser saint that you can get their advice and uh, hopefully you'll benefit from that the way I did. So that's Esther's wisdom. Let's look at Haman's folly here, verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. So here's Haman leaving this banquet in the state of a euphoria, right? He felt like he was walking on air, thinking very highly of himself to have been the exclusive guest at a private banquet with the king and queen. I mean, he was, he was already the, the king's closest confidant, his right-hand man, and now he'd been honored by the queen above all the other officials in the empire. She could have invited anybody she wanted to come to that, but she specifically selected him. And as he sat there with the royal couple, as they discussed this personal matter, his confidence must have just grown, and he surely thought, boy, my future is secure here. I'm in with the king and queen. Not just with the king, I'm in with the queen now. And yet little did he know that he was just a few hours away from being impaled on his own gallows. But notice what it says in verse 9, that his happy little bubble quickly burst when he met Mordecai on the way out, on his way home, and Mordecai still refused to bow down or show him any kind of respect or any kind of fear in his presence. And he was immediately offended, which I think reminds us of Proverbs 19, verse 11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is, it is to his glory to overlook a transgression. In other words, it's foolish when we let little things set us off, offend us, or rob us of our joy. I'll never forget somebody said to me one time, the mark of a mature Christian is they're not easily offended. Haman was easily offended. Verse 10, Haman and controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zareth. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared, and tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. So Haman gets home, he calls all of his friends together, his wife together, his kids together, so that he could gloat about all that he owned and all that he had accomplished. So here he was, like a proud peacock, just kind of fanning his wings for everyone to see to admire, and he boasted in his wealth, he boasted in his 10 sons. We know there was 10 of them because they all get killed in chapter 9. He boasts about the many ways he'd been shown honor by, by both the king and the queen. And again, it may remind you like it reminded me of what 
The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, nor let a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. In other words, God does not delight in you gloating about yourself. All that you've acquired, all that you've accomplished If you're going to boast about something, boast in the fact that God saved you, even though you didn't deserve it. Verse 13, yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Despite all this good fortune, the sight of this stubborn Jew just leaves a bitter taste in my mouth, and he had malice in his heart towards Mordecai. I want to stick it to this guy. And apparently his wife saw that. Then Jareth, his wife, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows, 50 cubits high, made, and in the morning asked the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. So if you ask me, Haman's wife is right up there with Job's wife. Job's wife, right? Hey, just curse God and die. Not what you want to hear from your helpmate, right? When you're at, you know, at your worst moment of your life. Here's Zareth, right? Encouraging him to give vent to his anger and bitterness and rage and exact revenge by building a 75-foot gallows and then asking the king's permission to impale Mordecai on it. And I say impale, you say a gallows, isn't that where you get hung? Well, the common method of execution used by the Persians, was a stake in the ground like a giant shish kebab. And they would just impale their enemies on these things. And the fact that it was 75 foot tall, I don't even know how tall the uh, Sam Houston statue is. That's about how tall, maybe. Uh, I'll have to look into that. But in other words, you could see it for miles. And so this was visible from all over the city, This was to be a spectacle, and so Haman intended to make an example out of Mordecai and to also squelch any opposition to the upcoming Jewish massacre. In other words, let this be a lesson to anyone who fails to honor me. And then the chapter ends. As if to say, tune in next time. The hero is tied to the railroad tracks by the villain, right? And here comes the train barreling around the bend. Will he be rescued in time? Because unbeknownst to Esther and Mordecai, his life was in jeopardy. Esther could lose her her parental guardian and primary advisor before she was even able to make her request to the king. I mean, this would have thrown everything off. It's going to happen tomorrow morning before the feast. But again, God was providentially at work behind the scenes, even through such a malicious act as the building of a gallows on which Mordecai could hang. And God was providentially at work even through the malicious act of the building of a cross on which his son was hanged. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 
This is what the apostles said, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That's why we're calling this series The Hidden Hand of God, seeing his providence in everything. Are you dealing with some unpleasant problem, some unpredictable, unprincipled person? You're not sure what to do or say? Don't panic. Don't act rashly. Don't speak foolishly. Follow the example set by Esther as you prayerfully and patiently wait on the Lord to give you the direction that you need to graciously, tactfully address the situation. Sometimes there's wisdom in waiting. There's a lot in the Old Testament about waiting on the Lord. Let me close with a quote from one commentator I thought really captured something that we need to consider as we're going through this story of providence. He said this, right commitments do not of themselves guarantee good outcomes for all involved. God does, work, God does work all things together for the good of his people who are called according to his purpose, but that does not mean we each always receive what we want. There is no theological calculus at work that guarantees us freedom from pain and loss even when we're committed to God's people and purposes. This is the ambiguity of the world in which we live, one in which we know and affirm God's presence, but one where the mystery of God's presence means we do not dictate to him how and where he works, and yet we continue to labor with all the wisdom available to us. And in order to put some flesh on that skeleton of a quote... What does that look like practically? I want to read for you a portion of a blog written by Tim Challies, who I'm sure some of you are familiar with. Tim Challies is a uh, Canadian pastor. Um, he's a well-known blogger. Uh, I've grown to appreciate him over the years for his discernment, especially uh, doing book reviews, what books we should read or shouldn't read. And some of you may have been following his story that their oldest son, Nick, who was a student at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky, just was out playing a game outside in a park with his sister, his fiance, and several other students, and he just dropped dead. This was back in the fall, back in November. And just last week, he wrote an update, a family update, and a cause of death. This is May 22nd, or May 26th, just last week here. To me, this is an example of how you see the providence of God in everything, even in the worst things imaginable. Listen to what he wrote. It took nearly six months, but the Jefferson County Coroner's Office finally determined the cause of Nick's death and sent us an autopsy report. It was a very long wait for a crucial piece of information. And while it was very difficult to receive the report, we were glad to finally know. We couldn't bring ourselves to read it, so took a quick photo of it 
each page and sent it to a doctor friend. He read the report thoroughly and explained what we needed to know. Essentially, the autopsy led to a diagnosis of presumed cardiac dysrhythmia of uncertain etiology. In other words, for causes that remain unknown, Nick's heart very suddenly and unexpectedly slipped into an unsustainable rhythm, which in turn led to full cardiac arrest. And now we know, he writes. Now we know that the heart of an otherwise healthy young man can just stop. We wouldn't have imagined. The day we received the report was one of the hardest we've had since he died. Yet there was also some comfort in it. It was comforting in the sense that he did nothing wrong and we did nothing wrong. It was comforting in the sense that the people who tried to save him did all that they could since without specialized equipment there was little that could be done to save him once he collapsed. And it was comforting in the sense that it was so clearly an act of providence in which the Lord just took him. All we can do is bow the knee. Two weeks ago was the day that would have been Nick's wedding. It was an extremely difficult day, a day in which I think we were mourning the future that will never be. He was so proud to be engaged, so eager to be Rin's husband, so gratified that she was willing to have him. We visited the cemetery that day and laid a boutonniere at his grave as just a token of what might have been. I took the speech I would have given at his wedding, a speech that expresses my pride and honors him for becoming the man he was, and read it there. It was so hard, it was so sad, so devastating, but the Lord met us there bringing us comfort through some readers of this site who just happened to be there at the, present, or at the same time, who introduced themselves and who prayed for us as we stood together by our son's grave within a very short distance of their own son's grave. And Tim Challies shared this experience in an Instagram post with a picture of Nick's tombstone. And this is what he wrote. Today would have been his wedding So we took him a boutonniere and the speech I would have delivered, and the Lord, in his providence, brought a couple to our side who were visiting their son's grave and who prayed down heaven's comfort upon us. The Lord is good. God, we know that you're good. You've told us you're good in your word. You've put on display your goodness in our lives in so many ways and so many times, but sometimes bad things happen to us, things that we can't even comprehend, that the pain is excruciating. But Lord, even in those bad times, those difficult things, those things we would never wish on anyone, we know you're still good. And so would you grant us the grace to respond in the same way to your providential dealings in our lives, even when it's not what we want? Thank you for the challies and the example that they've been to so many of us and how to endure an extremely heart-wrenching, painful trial. Pray that you would continue to comfort them and sustain them and use them to comfort others with the comfort that they've received from you. And Lord, I pray that if, that if our day comes, when we are faced with a similar trial, Lord, that we would, having been equipped 
through the study of your word and the example of others like them, Lord, that we would respond in a way that would please you and would be a powerful testimony to our lost and dying world that you are good even in the midst of bad things and painful things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.